All right, welcome to another episode of the YPE podcast. We have a special edition of the pod today. Mark Nelson, an outspoken nuclear advocate and managing director of the Radiant Energy Fund, recently gave a speech in downtown Denver, an event sponsored by the Denver Petroleum Club, YPE, and the CU Denver Global Energy Management Program. And after that speech, our very own Mark Heineman joined him on stage to moderate a Q&A session with questions from the audience. As you'll soon find out, Mark Nelson is a very compelling speaker, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's that Q&A session. Mark, I'm so excited to be talking to you. This is, this is, this is super fun. Um, we're friends, right? Like, I'm in oil and gas. You're, you're in nuclear? I, I think you just said we're friends. Nuclear has um, very few strange bedfellows because it has very few bedfellows traditionally. Um, it doesn't mean that's going to be the way in the future. Uh, other energy sources have very strange relationships. For example, almost anywhere you go in a European airport a majority of the ads you'll see are fossil fuel companies promoting renewables. So I, I appreciate that you say we're bedfellows, but I think the bedfellows part is less about the fact that you're in oil and gas and I'm in nuclear and about the fact that you're uh, optimistic and young. <laughs> young. Young and foolish. I love that. No. Uh, so, We'll, we'll format this. Uh, I'd like to ask Mark a couple questions because I've got a microphone and I love having a microphone. So I'm very excited about it. Um, and then we'll have a little bit of back and forth and then open it up to the audience and you guys can ask questions. I'll ask a question. We'll keep the conversation for going, going for 45 minutes for an hour. So let's start off since I think a lot of the audience is in oil and gas or comes from a petroleum background. What are the good things about nuclear that oil and gas can't do? And then what are the good things about oil and gas that nuclear can't do? Gas is hard to move. It's really hard to move. It makes coal look easy. It makes oil look easy. And to the extent that natural gas being really cheap, so cheap that a bunch of you may have hurt a bit over the last decade at different times, the qualities that these European leaders liked out of it, like the clean burning or whatever, that, that came along with something very dangerous that they all discovered late last month. That is the fact that you can have a German-funded pipeline providing German-purchased natural gas to uh, top-of-the-line German uh, natural gas, combined-cycle natural gas power plants, operated, run by Germans on German territory for German electricity consumption. And it is actually Russia's if it's gas. Why? Because... If they shut off the flow, Germany runs out of power in three days, three days at the moment. And there's not a particularly good way around it. So what Russia is saying, they, they're sending their uh, environment and ecology ministers, who are the energy ministers, to Qatar, a, good, uh, a nice nation where they are begging for natural gas and bowing and scraping and asking to be able to as far as I can tell, they seem to be wanting Qatar to break contracts with poorer nations to give energy to Germans because Germans are very productive and they kind of deserve other people's things if they can make better use of it. That is the internal psychology, even beloved German friends that I have. I hate to say it, but that is in their nature. And it's true. They are very good at using uh, resources, theirs or others, extremely efficiently and productively, right? So they are down there begging for gas that if provided, will come ship by ship, maybe in time to fill up a, I mean, if they can get a, a floating regasification ship because they refuse to buy, uh, they refuse to build or permit or allow a, uh, you know, a regasification facility. Why? Because they had Russian gas pipelines. All of this is the transport problem. Nuclear, in the opening days of the war, I remember a tweet scrolling by where somebody's like, wow, there's this mysterious plane flying to, uh, I believe it was Slovenia. And what was that plane carrying? It was like several million people's worth of electricity in a single cargo hold. 
in nuclear fuel rods. A single flight. I don't think gas can do that. Love it. So your, your comment about you wanted to put oil and gas out of business hits home, right? Uh, I share an aspiration, meaning I work in oil and gas and eventually, I mean, whether we run out or climate change forces the conversation, we'll have to transition to something else. How can oil and gas work together or work together with nuclear now to work towards that eventuality? I'm going to reject the question. <laughs> so I, I was invited to speak on a, on a webinar to a bunch of very bright young students from around Africa who had gathered in Accra, Ghana for a nuclear conference. And then I was like, I, I don't have a kid yet. This is the time when I should actually go in person and meet the people who, if the optimistic view of the world comes out to be the more accurate one, are going to be the future heads of state and energy ministers and the people who have to make big, bold decisions to go nuclear if that's in the cards. So got my visa, got my shots, went to Ghana, and the gist of the speech I ended up giving was this. And this was November, so before Russia invaded Ukraine. It was this. A lot of powerful people are going to come talk to your head of state and your, and your industrialists, and they're going to say, we are decarbonizing, so you can decarbonize, we'll help you. They're lying. They're not going to do it. In the case of Germany, Germany kept almost all of its coal plants, even though like in 2020, Germany's coal fleet ran at a capacity factor of about 25%. That meant that some of the cleanest burning coal plants were probably at 50, 60%. And probably half the fleet was a 10% capacity factor, an unthinkably low number. And that somehow they just didn't go out of business. Isn't that extraordinary? Is it because Germans are wasteful people who just love wasting money? No, it's because they were obviously hedging in case they just need to burn coal forever. So when you say we have to get out of things, I don't know if that's true. I don't think the people saying that necessarily always believe it beyond the rush of giving a speech. And, you know, we have folks like Larry Fink of BlackRock who said um, that oil and gas, we got to get out of it. We got to face it out. Um, that was a few years ago when it wasn't making money. Now it's making money. He's like, what I meant was it's a critical part of the transition. <laughs> so no, we absolutely don't. We, we could broil this rock. Like we, it doesn't, we don't have to do anything. And in fact, a lot of the people who are most worried about climate change have a model in their head of climate change that is basically just copy pasted over from their internal model of what nuclear war is going to look like which is one of the reasons why the people most panicked about climate change also reject nuclear first because it's all the same thing and they just lump it all together. It's a bad thing. And Why would you solve climate change just to go to nuclear? Isn't that the same thing? I know it sounds crazy, but this is not, this is not a rational. They aren't writing out an essay. I'm afraid of climate change because I was scared as a kid of nuclear war. Therefore, I think nuclear uh, war is actually nuclear reactors and the same thing. Therefore, nuclear reactors can't be used as a solution to climate change. It's not so much like that. And for a lot of, a lot of very powerful nations and uh, directors of capital, even the big NGOs, if it comes down to like working with Russia again next year or um, turning off their nuclear plants, they're going to like work with Russia and stop caring about climate change at the same time. Not all of them. But like the Germans would, right? So like, we don't have to do that. I admire the aspirational quality of saying that you see it. Let me see if this is the same way I see it. It is unwise to mess with the composition of the atmosphere if we've got other ways to live well. Is that, like, that's, I think that's a good enough way to put it, which is why I got all the way back around to saying whether or not we have to get out of oil or gas we're not going to, unless there's something that's as good or better, which nuclear isn't yet. We'll get into that. I, I like that. Um, you know, a common theme in the nuclear industry is one that the oil industry knows quite well, and that's that we're vilify, vilified or hated among the public, despite all the good that we provide for society. Um, I think you've alluded multiple times to a problem that is just a PR problem and that we need to gain popularity among the public again. I mean, it happened in France in the past year. How do we do that? How are you doing that now? 
without more wars? <laughs> so that's another question. Is, is the war good or bad for energy and good or bad for nuclear and oil and gas? Uh, so I'm not asked to go on the news now to give updates on the power plants because people have gotten bored of that theme. So it's, it, the war in Ukraine, catastrophe as it is in many ways, is ambiguous for nuclear. Belgium has cracked. So Belgium, a uh, strange, beautiful, wonderful, dysfunctional little country that had democratic elections then took 500 days to form a government after it. Finally formed a government only because the Green Party came to the table and said, form a, part, a minority party government around us. We have only one demand. We'll work with anyone and do anything. We have one single demand. They needed um, one of their members, a Green Party member, who's a lawyer who had worked in a partnership that was representing Gazprom. They needed her to be energy minister. That's it. That's all the green ecology people needed. Just their gas lobbyists to be energy minister. That's it. And everything else they would compromise on. So the government formed out of that around that. And the reason why the Green Party insisted on that is because they had a very hard task. Belgium is 50% nuclear electricity power. And they have only three years to get rid of all of it. Yeah, 50% of their electricity supply, the, essentially the only non-fossil fuel electricity supply. And this is, you know, where Brussels, the capital of Europe, famous for caring about climate change is. And they were going to get rid of it so fast that I am not actually certain they would have been able to keep lights on, literally keep lights on in the low countries, even in normal times. Because guys, 50% of your electricity, that is a lot. We heard a certain issue coming out of Texas last year, and that's when Texas was down about 20% of its production as a surprise. Now, 20% as a surprise is different than 15% as an intentional thing. But Belgium has just announced that they are rethinking their phase out and they're giving a 10-year life extension to two of their nuclear reactors out of the seven they want to close. Now, this announcement came out right during the German trip to Qatar where Belgium planned to buy gas until Germany showed up. And I'm sure if it's between Germany and Belgium for a finite amount of gas, Germany's going to win and Belgium's going to lose. So it's not like it was like the best of an the best of uh, learning went into this decision. Like it's probably just saying the Green Party looking at it and saying, ah, the price of the fossil fuels we're going to have to buy from dictatorships in order to get rid of all of our clean energy for climate change or whatever um, is too big. So they cracked and they went backwards. So there is a chance that things are actually turning around and there is a chance that the war has done something for it, but it is still History is being written day by day on nuclear right now. I think a lot of people might be ignorant to this, but why are plants closing? If they're profitable and if we think nuclear is good, why are we shutting them down? Why do you have to save them? So in the rest of the... Okay, so there are areas where a lot of oil and gas is coming out of the ground. Nuclear plants there are in a different situation than nuclear plants elsewhere, either elsewhere in America or in the entire rest of the world. The reason why they're shutting down anywhere else in the world is because they are being forced to close by politicians who are elected for that specific or not elected parties that are elected on broad platforms and politicians that are put in place for a single mission, like our Belgian green minister who was there only to make sure that half of our nation's power got shut off by 2025. That's it. So that's why plants close outside of the U.S. Oh, yeah. There's a disclaimer. Only one country has built nuclear plants that can't be refurbished. That is Britain. It is a sad, dumb story of how that happened. They might even do it again with their next fleet of nuclear, but they are a special people and we have to be patient with them. Um, the British nuclear plants cannot be refurbished. Everybody else's nuclear plants of every other type can be refurbished. Heck, there are nine reactors um, today, full-size reactors of the Chernobyl design, and they can be refurbished. And they were refurbished and they continue to make electricity for Russia. So like everybody's reactors can be refurbished. If you hear, oh, the reactor's old, check and see, are they talking about Britain? If they're not, they're not telling the truth because reactors don't really age like us people do. They, they are living things and they as long as the reactor vessel steel is good, and as long as you keep the concrete dome from cracking and you don't do something dumb, 
there's no real upper limit to how long they can last. Like our today's reactors that may have been built in the late 60s, our grandkids could retire working at them. Which brings us to why they're closing in the US. So in the coastal states, they're closing because of how much coastal elites care about climate change, right? Because climate change is actually nuclear war and nuclear war is actually nuclear reactors. Nuclear reactors are bad, so they cause climate change or whatever, just kill them, right? So that's uh, like leadership in the East Coast and California, right? It's not, it's not real deep. And for any of the Gen Xer politicians, they don't even know that. They're just doing what they think is easy or they've been told to do by donors. Or It's not anything personal. Like we've talked to a lot of Fox, folks with, that know Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom helped orchestrate the impending closure of the last nuclear plant in California. It's again, one of those nothing personal. He doesn't even know what a nuclear plant is. Just he wanted it closed and to be able to claim it so he could run for governor and have that distinguishing against the other candidates. This is the quality of our leaders. This is what they care about. They've had it easy. The energy has been cheap. The infrastructure hasn't completely crumbled yet. You know, tech boom is healthy for California. It's just, you can just make up lazy, dumb reasons to destroy society and it just goes. So in California, it's not because it's out of the money or anything. It's just because um, some powerful people wanted it closed and made it a personal project. And the utility is not in like healthy uh, state to be able to fight it off or anything. They're not, they're kind of a captive beast. And they're not doing that well. So why are they closing in places that are the final places on earth left? This is say Midwest, um, a few New England plants um, and around say the central part of the US. It's because electricity markets came into being partly to kill them. Like the rules were written in order to make sure that nuclear plants would eventually be crushed to death. Not because your bills go down. No, your bills go up a lot when a nuclear plant closes, but that wasn't why the rules were written that way. Um, we could go- How, and how were the rules about, Well, some economists had some theories. So remember how I said how the, how the European energy ministers come to their conclusions. They say, look at all this evidence that supports my view. No, that's backwards. They have a view. They get the evidence that matches. They don't even know the numbers. And they say, here's a stack of documents. The economists that were chosen or brought forward to provide the theory for the electric, uh, electricity markets, they're not real markets. Only barely markets. They don't really work per se, but they are just patsies. They're just silly, uh, silly fools. But the people who brought those theorists in place are the ones who wanted to say, and this is where I don't want to offend anybody here, but if you find a lot of natural gas, but the power plants are already built and you, you have the power plants you need, how do you get more gas burned? You invent a system that causes somebody to be a giant bag holder for all the plants that don't run off natural gas and are already built. So like, then you make a system where new capital investors come in, build the natural gas plants and can get compensated for it by the electricity bills. Um, and as long as you do it right, consumer bills don't go up that much, or at least not in the short run. And all the bag holders are whoever invested in utilities when the utilities got saddled with this electricity market. We could go into way more really painful detail, but basically it's so complicated that nobody really knows and nobody outside of those battles particularly cares. Um, I still enjoy, now that we've saved the nuclear plants in Illinois, I still enjoy shocking people saying, hey, Chicago, it's 90% uh, nuclear electricity. And people are like, wow. And I was like, yeah, a few weeks ago, we almost lost half of it. They're like, what? I didn't hear about this. Like, yeah, no, you almost lost half of your electricity supply to Chicago. And nobody really heard about it on the news. The business papers in Chicago played it up as a greedy utility wants a subsidy. Also, they're corrupt. That's the level of moral seriousness they put on the issue. Why? Because electricity markets are extremely complicated, confusing. Almost everybody is, is, is talking their own book and it's really weird and no one wants to hear about it. But they were put in place to sell natural gas and to kill nuclear. The rules were tweaked to make it really good for renewables. So the renewables get paid sort of like outside the market system, but then they are allowed to mess up the market signal going to the nuclear plant to strangle the nuclear plant to death, even if it's the cheapest producer. So that's why they're closing in some parts of the US. Were gas prices are a little higher. Now the nuclear plants aren't closing. 
Too bad we lost like a bunch of them that could have lasted for another half century or more. And we just lost them a few years ago. They just closed. And that's, that's, how we, that's how we treat energy decisions here. So I would say the loss of those nuclear plants are to the direct benefit of anybody here that wants to produce and sell natural gas for a higher price. But I guarantee you, you're going to pay for that gain several times over in the, in the weakened position we have in the U.S., less gas that we're able to offer to Europe at beautifully high prices. You know, um, It's not purely altruism if we do a new gas Marshall plan. You, know? <laughs> you guys are going to do okay with that. And you're going to help the world, but you're not going to be able to sell as much because we've lost nuclear plants for no particular reason at all. And we sent in crews to chop into those pipes and make sure nobody could turn it on again. And since we're almost completely incompetent at building nuclear plants, there's no real danger of getting that wealth back for our society. Um, you can tell I have strong feelings about this issue. <laughs> uh, I love it. I think that's a good spot to open it up to the audience. So do we have uh, Sarah with the mic or anyone that wants to, to start off? Questions for Mark? Thank you, Mark and Mark. Um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's good to be here. Um, I have a question surrounding, I guess, your ideal world with nuclear and how that would look with the mix of energy markets, especially within carbon-free capacity. Um, over the next 30 years, I think the forecast kind of shows nuclear being one of the smaller players in the market, you know, compared to solar PV and batteries and hydrogen, even offshore wind, things like that. So what does your ideal world look like? Are you wanting to change that to where the mix of nuclear, even with small modular reactors is something that, you know, really can increase that number over the, uh, the forecast they have right now? First of all, is that a challenge? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so here's what my ideal world looks like. Every country lucky enough to have fossil fuels should be a dealer who doesn't use their own product, you know, like Norway. Side note, I went to Norway for the first time in August of last year, and I was walking along this beautiful boardwalk in Oslo with this very senior, former, dip, recently retired diplomat who held a bunch of key ambassadorial roles for, for uh, Oslo. And, and he was like, look, I'm just, I took this meeting as a, as a favor to your friend, but um, nobody is taken seriously if you mention the word nuclear in Norway. And I'm like, hey guys, wait, hold up. You're not thinking of it the right way. By all means, keep selling your hydroelectricity to Europe and keep selling your oil and gas, but you should hedge by building nuclear plants with your incredible cap, like national wealth fund build nuclear plants to displace, you know, like Russian gas or whatever, you know, displace other people's product. You'll make money if electricity is doing well. You'll make money if your oil and gas sales are doing well. And you won't be in a situation where if there's a problem with the electricity markets, which I hate, all your people are going to be upset at like your hydro prices. And the guy was like, why would our electricity prices be high? We have hydro. So Norway's electricity prices for its uh, citizens went up by, I think it was about a factor of 10 over the last few months, like 10x, because they hooked up to the electricity markets to make money off of other people's renewable fluctuation. And then they had a dry year. Oops, looks like uh, you know they're based on the weather too. And then they had full, like absolute exposure to the marginal prices in their surrounding countries that had gotten rid of their own power plants because the word was you could get hydro from Norway. Right. So that's currently the type of mixes that we're talking about, regardless of what any paper says about solar or wind or whatever. Last year, I would have said, here's all the things I'd like to change because it's really, I don't think we're going in the right direction. I, in some ways, I don't have to lift a finger now. It turns out that if the commodities are expensive, solar and wind become unreasonable very rapidly. And all the studies that thought that solar and wind just get to get cheaper because we're just smarter as humans, it's not really true. So why did solar get cheaper? Solar got cheaper because energy was extremely cheap. You'll find that labor in labor camps in Western China is damn near free. Um, which is where almost all of the like polysilicon came from to build like Google solar farms was from literal slave camps. Like that's why it was cheap. And if you disrupt that system, you have to restart over on trying to make it really cheap. 
And you're not going to beat those labor costs in the US. You really aren't. I mean, hell, people have tried like with prison labor and stuff, and it still gets out competed by Western China, right? So it wasn't just the labor. What China was building and then effectively subsidizing these like coal plants in the middle of nowhere with all these foreign and, and domestically owned factories around the coal plant where they got like Germany and their car companies to go ahead and put an engine factory out in Western China. See how this works, right? And then they would put the solar factory in and then the solar goes down a lot. And then your study that says it's going to be a lot more solar in the future, it's, you see the price keep going down. It's already going back up and not by a little, by a lot. So that's one aspect. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're not, if you're rich enough, you can kind of force anything to happen like Germany, which kept all its coal plants, clever, clever boys and girls over there. They're going to be able to keep buying that solar like from Western China, right? And they can make it as, they can keep going as long as they don't mess up their grid and they keep burning fossil fuels to make their grid go, right? But let's say wind. What we're finding is that as your wind projects get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, they stop having the aspects of small things done over and over, and they start having the nature of very large things done less frequently, you know, sort of like nuclear. So what are we seeing? Here's an example of the wind projections um, and what they would have to look like in real life. Onshore first, onshore wind. Germans hate wind. They, and all the surveys, they're like, yes, we love wind, but then they don't allow it, right? So the only places that are left are like the national forests. So what they're going to do is take their national forests in Germany. Germans are interesting people in a number of ways. They're really intense about their forests. But since that's like owned by the federal government, they're going to take na their national forests, put massive, massive roads through, like way bigger than logging roads because wind turbines are way bigger than logging trucks. They're going to keep that permanently cleared all through the spine of this entire forest ecosystem. And then they're going to build colossal turbines, and it's going to be like a, a very small amount of power. Onshore wind is really struggling anywhere where the people are rich enough to afford the, the now slightly increasing onshore wind prices. Yeah. So we'll see if that's growth. A lot of that wind growth is really the offshore wind. So offshore wind, I uh, was representing the American Nuclear Society in Glasgow at the climate conference, which was its own circus, because all the world leaders going there to make carbon commitments had just come from their own private meetings, begging for more fossil fuels. It's gotten only more extreme in the last couple of months. But anyway, they arrive and they declare they're going to have all this um, renewable and no coal and stuff. That didn't last. Um, but you go and you see some of the national exhibits like Denmark. Denmark's like national uh, pavilion, this huge pavilion, was basically just pitching international capital on a colossal like 30 billion euro artificial North Sea wind farm hydrogen mega island where they're going to like dredge up a bunch of the North Sea, make this colossal concrete structure. They're going to put in a bunch of new offshore wind turbines going out like, like, uh, like spokes. And then they're going to lose a ton of that energy, converting it to hydrogen when the wind blows. When the wind doesn't blow, either they'll burn natural gas to keep the hydrogen going, which is you know, why there's such good relationships between fossil fuels and renewables a lot of time, or they just won't and it'll be colossally expensive. And yeah, so I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, so 30 billion euro, where have I seen numbers that large before? And then I ask people, how's this going? Is this going to start next year? And they're like, no, well, we need several years of studies. We need a bunch of environmental permits. Then we need to raise the capital. Then there are a lot of engineering risks because it's a first of kind mega project. I'm like, boy, I'm just fresh off hearing every single one of those as reasons why we can't do nuclear, which would be a tiny fraction of the size, not subjected to nature. We've already done it before and we know it works. And if you're, you see my point. So the offshore wind that would produce those curves, I don't know what's going to happen. So this really does sound quite bullish for coal, oil, and gas, unless my dream world that you asked about unless we get closer to it. So here's what I see. Dealers sell, they don't use their own product. If they aren't blessed with hydro or they want to let the salmon run free or whatever, they build nuclear. And the cool thing about electricity is a lot of the people and organizations that hate nuclear say that the future is all electricity 
but we really got to provide a lot of it cheap all, all around the clock. And you're like, wait, but didn't that, wouldn't that be nuclear? And they're like, oh no, but nuclear is bad. Okay. So now an enormous number of people, very smart people, an immense amount of capital is going into converting as many things as possible to go on the grid. So my world is that where that's practical, where that provides literally a better consumer product, a better service, you lean in. I mean, Norway is a heavily electrified society. It's very comfortable. It's quite nice. That's because they had until a few months ago, extremely cheap electricity, and they've built around that, right? They sell their oil and gas. They don't use it. So for me, that's the answer. I want nuclear to go as fast as possible. I want it to you know, be used for as many things as possible. If we care to go in this direction, nuclear can do more than just electricity. It can provide direct process heat. We just had an interesting little news story come out last week. The Dow um, was finally looking at nuclear again after, I don't know, 50-year break. The last time Dow was looking at nuclear, um, they were an important player in aspects of the, of the uh, Manhattan Project, for example. They got some of the biggest contracts, some of the trickiest work around the nuclear weapons and nuclear power enterprise went to Dow. Well, they're looking at nuclear again. At the point that you're using nuclear for really high temperature process heat, a lot of things start working really well, and everybody can find their place in a rich society like that. Here's what I mean, and this is part of the world I want to see. You described a world we might see in terms of what the like, abstract percentages of energy is, and that's one thing, but almost all the money it takes to run a nuclear plant, say, to build a nuclear plant and run it, almost all of it is money that's being paid to humans to crawl around and do human things. Very little of it goes to minerals. Now, I don't want to scare everybody. There's still exciting times in the uranium world, but you don't need much stuff for your nuclear. This seems like a good time to make this fun uh, energy comparison. An electron volt is a profoundly small amount of energy, but if you convert enough of them, uh, you, you can run a society. So an electron volt is, again, extremely tiny amount of energy. You get 10 electron volts of energy if you break one methane molecule. You can harvest that as heat. When you break apart one uranium atom, you get 210 million electron volts, which is more. So you lose a lot in like the bureaucrats and like the extra security guards and stuff like that. But that core, it's really hard to waste enough of that energy to not come out ahead anyway. So in current nuclear plants, I think it's somewhere between um, 80 and 90% of the cost of producing nuclear electricity is payroll. And a lot of that payroll is going to people without college degrees, not saying they can't get one and then go do something else, like you get a literature degree and then go work at a nuclear plant or whatever. But a society where people have a way to contribute extremely well and live like Homer Simpson, even today, having a house and car and you know a one income household with three kids, that still exists. You just have to work at a nuclear plant. So that's my society where you can get your heat and your electricity. You barely use up a little bit of that uranium from Western US or Canada. And then you can fight about stupid things again, which is how we got into the situation in the first place that we're having this talk. Thanks for the presentation. Um, two issues come to mind. First of all, I, I forget how you put it, but it was clever about how inept we are at building nuclear facilities. So uh, I was wondering if you could speak of the next generation nuclear facilities and how that really happens. Secondly, um, a big constraint, whether it's real or imagined, is the nuclear waste. If you could discuss that as well. Thanks. Very, two very good questions and two of my favorites. So first on the next generation facilities. The country that's best at next generation nuclear is Russia. The country that's best at this generation nuclear is, any guesses? Russia. That's because there's way more overlapping competencies than anything made possible by the innovation part. So for example, people, or let me, let me be even more uh, cynical for you. 
a generation four reactor that you build for the first time, that's a generation one reactor, see? We got to generation three reactors by, by iterating very similar designs over and over and over until we know they can last a century and we can operate them here in the US at 94% uptime with a, a payroll small enough to be able to survive even an electricity market literally invented to kill them. So current nuclear that's already built is doing very well. And the places where next generation nuclear is actually getting built and operating well are, is where 95% of the orders are for the traditional nuclear. It doesn't mean there's no hope. And in fact, let me, let me say the strongest version of what might be coming with, say, small modular reactors or a different core design or a different coolant design that may make it easier to get over our inability to build. The reactors being built at Vogel in Georgia um, are, what, they're like six years late and they were supposed to cost 12, 13, 14 billion and now they're at 32, 33, 34 billion. So that's clearly not very good and they're closely related to last generation's reactors. Question is, are there next generation reactors that have changes that mitigate the worst of what went wrong at Vogel? Partly, you don't have to worry. Partly what went wrong at Vogel is a lot of the most famous companies in the building of America's existing nuclear fleet had not a single person left, although the company name was the same. At the time that they won bids, they had no ability to deliver and really no business bidding on to, to deliver that plan. And once enough small guys collapsed, they collapsed up into Westinghouse and Westinghouse then collapsed and then Westinghouse's owner Toshiba collapsed. So there was like a house of cards and a lot of rot had set in in the American nuclear industry and almost all of it got discovered and eliminated by just dying in the process of messing up that plan. Question is, if we make a new design, are we going to be able to build it with the remaining companies that either didn't collapse or wouldn't have collapsed if they had won the bid that they put in that was more expensive? It's not clear, but maybe. A famous British philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell, said that a large book is a large crime. So a book is a crime, and therefore a large book is a large crime. It may be that a large reactor is a large failure waiting to happen. And what we just have to bite, or, you know, bite the bullet and do is make smaller reactors so that if we do fail, the failures are smaller. In other words, treating reactors closer to, say, an F-35 military jet program where you know it's going to be a real cluster getting the first ones going, but it's small enough and you've prepared enough that you've made a program. A way I'd look at it is if you made smaller reactors, maybe we'd have a world where it's like the Apollo missions, where it was eight years to launch the first landing. And then we had five more landings in three years before we canceled it. And we've been unable to go back since. So if we have a program and we build that program with smaller reactors, we may have more shots on goals and we may be able to find more talent out there in America who want this challenge specifically. And that may be the way back. And so any small reactor would fit the bill if all we're looking for is small. I have to frequently disappoint interested Americans who ask me, okay, so the rest of the world, you know, what are they doing? And I'm like, they want this, they want the most conservative reactor with the least amount of changes from traditional nuclear possible. The most serious people out there in the world who absolutely must have the power and do not have alternatives. The first thing they say is we want as little innovation as possible in the reactor. We'll innovate in which people do it and how we do construction management and how we uh, do procurement and engineering, but they don't want any changes in the reactor. I personally think that if we have a general competency and willpower uh, to execute nuclear, then we'll be able to try lots of interesting things, but we need a program. A problem that I see is folks promoting one specific weird new design, and then they'll be promoting it, say, in Wyoming. And then Wyoming will be like, wow, that's cool. And then they write a nuclear legalization law that includes all these weird things from the legislators thinking they know what they want from the technology. And it ends up being a, this huge headache where the same reactor builders are like, no, no, we didn't mean you to write the law like that. And then now they're struggling over 
whether Wyoming legislators that are so hands-on about which type of reactor is best now, they're freaking out about whether they'll be even able to build their reactor. They're going to spend years trying to get the laws that they just fought for repealed because they're overly specific with technology. This is one of the problems with advanced nuclear. Having said all this, if somebody with enough money wants to try hard enough on a particular advanced design, I am for that effort if it does not obstruct, say, more conservative designs that have a better chance of success, especially in training up young people on how to construct nuclear plants. We're talking really basic stuff, guys. Like I talk to young engineers who are working on Vogel, right? And they're like, well, we had plans that were like 3D, but like that's not how you build things because the builders couldn't use them. And that was the finished design of the nuclear plant that couldn't that had to be reinterpreted on site, but under the, under the weight of thousands of regulations from the NRC that said like exactly this is how your rebar has to be placed because we had an ultra precise 3D design made by somebody who's never put together rebar before that says that the rebar has to be exactly like this. And then they pour two feet of concrete over the rebar and then have to bust it all out over the course of months to relay it slightly differently in ways that are probably immaterial for safety, but they have to match exactly what are in the rules. That's sort of nonsense. That's going to happen whether we have one type of reactor or another. We just have to get better at doing it. And sure enough, the, the folks working on Vogel invented a new way of doing walls that eliminated the particular problem with the rebar knitting, which was to use two really strong steel plates in a sandwich and fill that with Concrete. Good. We made it. However, we bankrupted some of the biggest industrial enterprises on planet Earth to get there, and we're at 34 billion for two reactors. And no orders for other ones. So where are we going to use those walls, huh? So that's the type of thing we need breakthroughs on rather than the specifics of which type of reactor. I am convinced that a competent nuclear nation will be able to try a bunch of designs. And do you know how I know that? Because we did it. Almost every type of there are types of reactors so weird and exotic that nobody learns about them in school anymore. And we did them. And they were commercial operating reactors that made money selling electricity in the U.S. How many exist in the U.S. right now? How, uh, many, is, how many are the U.S. using? There's different uh, reactor designs. Let's, oh, how many different designs? Oh, all the weird ones are gone. So, right, I, I don't think people realize like, how, many, how many different types of nuclear power plants exist. Like, Depending on we, how we we're don't have cutting this RBM, question, right? there's like kind of two reactor types that are in the US. For people who are promoting advanced reactors, they would see those as almost one reactor type because they use the same coolant, the same fuel, a lot of the same concepts, right? So, but we use kind of- So it's like 50 years, 20% of America's electricity, one design that we haven't innovated on or improved or built anything else. And, And that's been good enough. They right. work really, really well, and anybody coming out of the Navy knows the technology quite intimately. So there's a, there's a talent farm that works for both keeping our country safe and also keeping our country powered. So there's a real synergy there. It's not saying that there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a way to, to work it out with other types of reactors, but I think that's underappreciated. Anybody coming up with an advanced reactor design first has to design it, come up with it, do lots of little component tests, get it licensed, then build it. And then you're stuck in the worst business in the world, making electricity in these absolutely cursed and dysfunctional electricity markets. I think everybody stops before that phase. I mean, that goes with fusion too. So the advanced nuclear question could, I mean, what about this fusion stuff? Okay, go for it. Once you get to fusion, then you're stuck in the worst business in the world, making electricity. And who's going to like, no one cares about your science fair project at the point that it's just making electricity. So- I think that advanced nuclear designs have a lot of promise. I think that we're missing a program. If the program goes for an advanced nuclear design that I don't like or is dumb, I'm still going to fight it. If that's what America comes behind and puts $50 billion behind or whatever, we'll, we'll make it work, right? As far as the waste, this is the good part. There's almost none of it, and it's not an engineering problem. It's just like you have to build a waste museum, and you have to have really good educational tours. You should have a good cafe. You should have really good architects, make pretty colors. All of these things, this isn't fake. I went to the world-leading nuclear waste dump in in, uh, Netherlands, where at the height of COVID, they're like, ah, we don't really worry about masks here. Okay, so we didn't wear masks. And they're like, oh, your ID, ah, whatever. 
Um, and then we went to the nuclear waste museum where they show kids like what the different types of radiation are. And they have this beautiful cloud chamber where they turn off all the lights and you see like the basic particles of the universe, like splashing through this dark bubble chamber, flashing into light briefly. You see, you know, alpha particles and beta and gamma rays coming in from uh, supernovas a million light years away. And then you go look at the nuclear waste that has the different types of radiation and you get to stand on it and look at it and stand close to it. And you get to see the big door move and it's all pretty colors and there's really cool art they commissioned and also a bunch of tapestries because it serves as a uh, storage facility for the local uh, history museum. And all of the Dutch nuclear waste is there. You're done, right? You don't need a hole in the ground. You don't need a screw Nevada plan. You don't need to piss off everybody. You just need to make it a, a valuable visiting experience. And then people see it differently. And if you must, you make it a living facility. So one of the big panics is that a temporary waste facility is going to become a permanent one. So the way the Dutch do it is that they built their waste thing in a spot where they're like, each 20 years, we hold a council. Citizens will come and vote whether we should spend 20 billion euros to dig a big hole in the ground next to this perfectly nice facility. And of course, each 20 years, people are going to be like, no, then we won't be able to see it as well. Or, ah, no, why bother, right? And each 20 years, they can just invite people back and vote on whether to dig a hole in the ground. And then they can just make a plan showing this is our plan for the next 100 years. And then each 20 years, they just re-up their 100-year plan. And then they can get on to other business, like stopping all of Netherlands from going under the sea. Which, by the way, is why I think the Dutch are very pragmatic, because they've got real things to cry about, like their entire country periodically flooding back in the medieval times until they invented the dikes and by doing so invented a lot of modern capitalism. Who else? Yeah, I had a question. Um, so oil and gas has had instance in our industry to where those have led to major safety improvements and processes, you know, but I would, I would think it'd be hard to find anybody in the world that could name some of the biggest oil and gas incidents, but I think almost anybody could name some of the biggest uh, nuclear incidents you know, um, down to even like my six-year-old could name Chernobyl, right? So how do you fix that image problem? Because I think an energy mix is important, but how do you fix the, the image problem itself? Because when you, when you show on a map the size of the Chernobyl exclusion zone, I mean, it's incredibly large and, you know, there will be many, many lifetimes before that will be, you know, fertile land again. So how do you address those um, situations? Wonderful question and one that is typically asked in a much more antagonistic and less gracious manner. So I appreciate it. So for me, I've found I just go straight, straight into Chernobyl. So I say things like this. Yeah, it was bad, but it didn't shut down the power plant, did it? In fact, the year after the blast, it, it, it achieved a higher record for, new, or for electricity output. And then the year after that, there was even more electricity. And then the year after that, and they only shut off the plant because uh, Ukraine got a payout from the Germans to turn it off. So the worst nuclear accident in history in a very compact site where each reactor was one right next to the other didn't even shut off the plant. So however bad it was, why didn't even like, if you have a su sufficiently bad industrial accident, you would expect to at least destroy the facility, right? Well, Chernobyl didn't even do that. So we've got to, We've got to think, why is there a mythology of Chernobyl that misses the fact that it was a boring workaday power plant for 14 years and only got shut off because Germany paid Ukraine to shut it off? Oh, yeah. And there was about 12 cancer deaths. Now, that's a little trickier because then people want to litigate. No, that sounds impossibly low. I bet you're just bullshitting me. So I have to be careful there. And I typically don't even talk about how there was almost no deaths. I do say this. Ukraine is one of the most aggressive users of nuclear energy in the world. They have the most extreme and unreasonable plans to add nuclear energy. And they're willing to keep running nuclear plants even as battles rage around it. Why? Because they need the energy. What do they know that we don't about Chernobyl, right? It was their land and they kept Chernobyl on. They had to be paid to turn Chernobyl off. And do you know what they use the money for? to finish another nuclear plant, to replace the power. So none of that is to make light on what you've heard of Chernobyl, just that clearly the Ukrainians didn't get this story 
And they're the ones that happen to. So another thing I do that's maybe counterintuitive, I start rattling off uh, disasters that people have never heard of that actually did kill people at nuclear plants. Yeah, there are nuclear plant disasters, including in the U.S., that actually killed people. Arkansas Nuclear One is the most recent fatal accident at a nuclear plant. Um, Surrey, Surrey Nuclear Plant, Virginia, they had a really ugly one. Four dudes died. Japan, they were advertising to the world their bad approach to safety when a decade before Fukushima Daiichi, nine workers got like boiled to death from a nuclear plant accident. Why does nobody care about these highly fatal nuclear accidents? Why have I never heard an anti-nuclear person be able to name any of these or know any of these? But that's not the weird part. The weird part is after I say these, and I've had continued conversations, the anti-nuclear folks I talk with, they don't remember those. It doesn't even, like fatal nuclear accident doesn't even click in their mind, which means that something very strange is going on and the traditional approaches of answering people's safety fears may not work here because their safety fears, if anything, are inflated, the less fatal an accident is, like Fukushima Daiichi, where you had three level seven on the IAEA event scale meltdowns where three reactor cores melted. Then the buildings around them blew up. And then, um, yeah, so why didn't somebody die from it? Right? But, you know, in people's heads, it was world-ending. I met, maybe I sh this is just a San Francisco issue, but I met a woman who claimed that because of Fukushima Daiichi, the Pacific Ocean was dead. And I was like, wait, the ocean is dead. She's like, it's dead now. Do you mean like the fish are dead? And she's like, I, the ocean, because of radiation. I'm like, I, I understand. Are you saying the ocean is dead? Like, what did, what did she even mean the ocean was dead? She wasn't an idiot or a more, I mean, but like, in the, wait, 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 wait. In the end, something very sophisticated and weird is happening when people cannot find it in them to care about the fatal nuclear accidents. It's because of the core and the radiation and the link to nuclear war. So this is where it gets interesting. If Say I'm talking to Germans and they're like, oh, you know, the nuclear reactor is just very dangerous in the waste, you know, the waste. And I'm like, yeah, nuclear bombs are dangerous too. And they're like, yeah, yeah. They, their emotional tone doesn't change. However upset Germans are about nuclear reactors or nuclear waste, it is exactly how upset they are about nuclear bombs. And you're like, wait. These are not the same thing. Nuclear bombs can definitely vaporize Berlin immediately. So like, why is this? That brings you to the story I mentioned in, in brief at the, at the start of this discussion, where if you find somebody who has a really intense fear about Chernobyl, it's unlikely you'll dislodge that quickly unless you have an honest conversation about nuclear weapons. Because it's... They're not all upset about Chernobyl enough to like look up whether Chernobyl type reactors are operating today in Europe. They are. They're operating today in Europe. I never met an anti-nuclear person who knew that. Wouldn't you think that that's really important to somebody who's worried about Chernobyl, that there are Chernobyl type reactors in operation in Europe? Like, wouldn't that be like a top concern that we just walk around being scared about if we think that Chernobyl is a reason to turn off nuclear? It's because it's about the bomb. It's because the imagery of Chernobyl, of exclusion zones, even of Yucca Mountain being a facility that traps nuclear waste down deep in a deep tomb for millions of years. And uh, people are going to crawl around with like tumors on them, like not being able to read words that say, don't eat this nuclear waste or whatever. That's really a Mad Max fantasy about the after effects of nuclear war, right? So there's my answer. For those who are really curious and want to hear about nuclear safety, who tend to be younger people, we can have a little bit about nuclear safety, but I have to check whether it isn't just trauma about nuclear war they're worried about. So that's the way I go into it. For those who are in the traditional nuclear industry, what they do is they have an immense amount of detail about all the things they're going to do to stop you from being killed by a nuclear plant. They're going to talk to you about safety, about new reactor types, about stopping meltdowns, about triple checks, quadruple checks. Uh, quintuple backup systems, 
uh, Fukushima Daiichi safety upgrade programs. In America, we station entire mercenary armies around our nuclear plants, like tattooed dudes with huge muscles and giant guns, and they kind of bully you around because it makes us feel safe. The Dutch, you know, a country that could flood and kill 5 million people in, in, a, in a day if they mess up their engineering, they have a rule. No guns allowed at nuclear plants because they think it's a threat to safety. It probably is. They can call the National Guard and then the Army just a few minutes down the road, right? They don't keep the guns on site because they're like, we understand our reactor. There's nothing you can do with a gun. Um, we think guns are bad, so we have a metal detector, right? So that's the conversation. I have to figure out if people really want to hear that the Dutch don't have guns or whether they need to talk through really deep-seated fears, perhaps good ones, like authentic and reasonable fears about nuclear war. I tend to find that, that folks want to have a conversation that they've never been able to have about nuclear war. Mark, your uh, passion is palpable. Really, really appreciate the conversation. Um, I'm going to make a comment about the uh, tw 20 gallons of water that we have on stage right now, which is kind of peculiar. But Mark had alluded to the energy density conversation before. And before this discussion, he had asked us to have a comparison. And that's the comparison. That's a tank of gas for a car, right, to go like 400 miles. Uh, a similar size amount of uranium would be 1.5 millimeter sphere, which we don't have up here because you guys couldn't really see it. Right. So just a little realistic visualization. Um, Mark, I'll, we're, we're unfortunately running out of time and I want to drink lots of beer next door and I can't wait to do that with you. I guess this is kind of a final question. Uh, leave us on an optimistic note. Where do you see this going and what's something that's actionable for our audience to take away um, that, that they can do and they can take back from their day to day to, to push us forward? Yeah. So here's one. Um, Cole is having something of a small comeback this year. And it's going to keep being important whether or not it gets destroyed or not. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of an issue for a lot of countries, I think, because they're going to destroy their coal and they need it for all the reasons that I said in my opening talk. So coal plants are going to end up closing. And uh, the thing about a coal plant is that you need a big body of water or maybe a fast flowing river or maybe an ocean or something like that to cool off the, the internals of the plant and make your, make your power, right? Well, that's exactly what you need for a nuclear plant. Here's another thing. If you have a coal plant in the community, it's likely that a lot of weighing up has been done. Like we have this, we understand, maybe it's not great, but it's our way of life. It's like people who choose the risk of say smoking, which a lot of young people are getting back into smoking. They're like, well, you know, this makes sense for me. I can stop if I need to. I understand there's some risk, but there's some risk in everything. So there's a pragmatic attitude around coal plants. For example, there's a lot of uh, sovereign indigenous nations that get a lot of the money they need to have good lives from things like coal, gas, oil, right? So a lot of these plants are going to really struggle to get financed, not because the power isn't needed, but because the people who would be controlling the, the capital don't see it worth the pain of being connected in media to sponsoring coal plant upgrades. A bunch of these coal plants are going to die. Question is what we do with it. So I may be skeptical about how much we can do in solving our problem that we don't know how to build things anymore by making our nuclear plants smaller. However, smaller nuclear plants are just right in the Goldilocks sense to replace the coal plants if we start now. So if somebody's interested, find somebody who owns or works at a coal plant or is interested in making money up until the moment that they can't and would like to have that transform into a century long, everybody gets rich, even people who didn't go to college industrial facility that will be paid big subsidies, big money if required out of Washington that doesn't have any other answers that both Democrats and Republicans can agree on. So yeah, find yourself a coal plant, go meet people owning it, operating it, whatever, ask them if they're interested in nuclear I wrote with some colleagues a report specifically aimed at people who want to see communities survive the exit of coal on what sort of possibility there is for nuclear, what the next steps would be. Get involved. It's a green pasture. Anybody getting involved and avoiding some of the basic errors about getting distracted with some of the sillier reactors or uh, you know, getting off on the wrong path, you can be a part of big industrial development projects now. Very large Movers of capital are willing to spend what to them is a pittance for at least like 
very early studies to figure out what's practical with different coal facilities. Let's talk, get involved with one, find a coal plant. Let's, let's uh, get going. If enough of an order book is there for a particular reasonable reactor type, then you can see how it would be worth getting either help or doing it between all the different entities around the world, wanting that one given reactor type to get the supply chains built and developed so that everybody can get in line and get their reactor vessel and get their plant built and use the lessons from the other sides. This is happening already, just not yet in the United States. So there, there's a note of optimism. Make money, help the world. Yeah. Fantastic. Everyone, let's give Mark a round of applause. Thank you.